Hello and welcome to Talk Spooky to Me, the Ghost Story Guys Mail Show. I'm Brennan Storer. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is our opportunity to hear from you, our listeners. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm enjoying being in a, in a haunted house. It's all great. Yeah, this is a very unusual backdrop. I'm used to seeing a lot of Funko Pops, and instead I'm seeing <laughs> artfully arranged flowers. Mm, yes, it's very tasteful. It's my mother for you. So you're, you're house sitting? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, house and dog sitting uh, while she's in Canada, ironically. Oh, right. Yeah, she's over on the, uh, the eastern side of the country, yeah? Yeah. Um, she's near Barrie in some weird place called Squirmy Wormy or something. <laughs> yes, um, of course. Yeah, Squirmy Wormy. Everyone knows that part of Ontario. Yeah, I forgot to check. My mum told me yesterday, I can't remember what it's called, but they live they live near Barrie. Okay, I, I know Barrie. Yeah, they've lived around there since they emigrated, because uh, it's very, very nice story. They met, six weeks later they ran off together, eloped, got married at Gretna Green, and six months later they emigrated to Canada. Oh wow, these guys don't do things halfway. Yeah, they've been together ever since. They don't only known each other six weeks when they got married. Really? Wow, that's cool. I, I You know, you hear stories about that, but I don't think I've known anyone who actually did that. And, you know, didn't uh, either murder each other or get divorced immediately thereafter. Yeah. He's a great guy as well, Rob. He was, he was really good when I first met him when he was, because he, he was, he, he, he kind of, he knew things, shall we say. So he knew about all the cool bands I liked and, right, and he right, liked right. his football. He was a big Everton fan. Um, and he once told me an amazingly hilarious story about searching for giant squirrels on acid in a friend's <laughs> attic. Now, were the squirrels giant and on acid or he was on acid looking for giant squirrels? He was on acid looking for giant squirrels. Okay. Did he find them? Yes. Interesting. Now, now what constitutes a giant squirrel? Uh, six foot. Oh, cool. Well, all right. So he found Harvey. Harvey, the squirrel version, yes. And uh, they, they shared some nuts of the eating kind. <laughs> that I'm glad you specified that. LSD yes, is a hell well, of a drug, folks. <laughs> well, you've got to be careful because obviously a lot of people here in, in Britain are quite aware of the size of squirrels' nuts. Thanks to a segment on the break, I can't even say it now, the Great British Bake Off a few years ago. There was a squirrel sat there as they did this cutscene around the baking tent, sat there happily with its nuts out. Like, <laughs> like, oh, I never knew a squirrel's testicles were that big. So there. And nobody noticed it for weeks. It was only when it was picked up by, by the internet and another show that they, they edited it. But sure, you can just think, I think it's just one of those things that people just, <laughs> they're showing as a squirrel's nutsack. I got to say, if I was one of those editors, I would just leave it in. I would just like, <laughs> yeah, fuck it. What the hell? Let's see. Someone's going to catch it eventually, but let's see how many, how many people can we expose this squirrel's genitals to before the internet catches it. That would be a game I played with myself. Boy, our, our later guest, Steve Stred, is going to love finding out that his interview segment was on the episode that started that talking about squirrel nuts. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Could be worse. Could have been Steve's nuts. I don't know. He's a big guy. You, you try and get those. <laughs> you go first. Anyways, let's, let's move on from that. This is, of course, the, the Ghost Story Guys Mail Show. And we do have a guest who will be joining us after the break. Author Steve Stred, a fellow Canadian, here to talk about his latest memoir, Color of Melancholy, an examination of Andrew Piper's novels as intersected through my life. And Steve's a great guy. We, he managed to carve out some time to talk to us on his lunch break. We don't even really scratch the surface of things we could have talked about with Steve, but still, it's a great conversation, and I think you folks are going to enjoy it. Before we get into the mailbag, I do have something a little more serious I, I should uh, bring up, or I want to bring up. So just o- over a week ago today, uh, Anthony, who folks will know uh, us talking about on the show, you know, we always say thanks to Luke, Sarah, Anthony, and Joseph, Anthony suffered an aneurysm. 
at his home in rural BC. He was taken to hospital in Vancouver. All things considered, he's doing really shockingly well. I'm not surprised Anthony is a hard motherfucker. He's just a, a tough guy, a great guy. And while, again, the situation is, is so much better than it could have been, I, 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 you know, we all know people who have lost folks to aneurysms. You know, when I was in high school, a kid I used to play baseball with, a friend of mine, he, he went that way. And so this is a best case scenario from what I understand. And, and I did go over to see Anthony in Vancouver last Friday. Uh, he was in good spirits. Again, you know, everything was a, it, the best possible scenario. Um, but, you know, there are still expenses, even though we do have uh, socialized medicine here in, in Canada, there are still expenses with being in hospital, missing work for as long as Anthony's going to have to miss work. And one of his neighbors in the small town where he lives has started a GoFundMe to help with those expenses. So I'm going to post a link in the show notes. Listeners, if you can contribute, it would be appreciated, but we certainly do not expect it. Anything helps. Even a, a couple bucks makes a difference. Uh, and again, we don't normally post GoFundMes, uh, and I know we've had folks get in touch and ask us to do that, and I always say no, uh, but this is, this is family. This is, this is an exception. And so we just want to, ex- to extend lots of love to Anthony, uh, who is, again, healing over in Vancouver. Uh, say, get well soon, my friend. And uh, again, if you can help out, um, they would certainly appreciate it. Yeah. Just take it one day at a time, big man, but you'll get there. Much love from the UK. Yes, sir. All right. So now it's time to check the mail. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. Our first message is from Rebecca. I wanted to write in with my adventures in house hunting. The first house just so happened to be next door to my best friend's house, where some friends and I saw an orb, featured on Book of the Dead, and they've also had some odd experiences there, including weird things popping up on their Xbox Connect. They don't use it for ghostly stuff. She was playing a game, and on multiple instances, she got kicked off because it detected another player, when she was the only one in the room. Thankfully, next door, in what would become our home, seemed quiet, and ten months later, nothing out of the ordinary has happened. Well, that I can't blame on the cats, anyway. The next house we toured had some weird vibes. I kept expecting to walk into a room and someone would be there. You didn't quite feel alone. Nothing felt negative, but after looking into the home, I feel like it may have been an elderly gentleman that had lived there. All the effects of all the mould in the basement, which was ultimately why we passed it up. Mould and asthma do not play well. The last one I struggled to explain. We pulled up to the house and we were waiting for our realtor. I saw someone sitting at the dining room table. I thought, that's odd, since it seems like people mostly vacate their homes for showings, but I didn't really care. Well, it turns out there was no one in the house. My partner didn't recall seeing anyone sitting there when we pulled up either, but I think his mind was more on, oh my God, I'm about to buy a house. The house was gorgeous. The living, kitchen and dining room were open concept and it looked like a beautiful log cabin. Despite how nice it was though, I just got bad vibes. Normally I don't put a lot of weight into stuff like that, but if it's somewhere I'm going to be living long term, I'm going to listen to my instincts. After checking out the yard, the realtor asked us if we wanted to go back in, and even if my partner wanted to, I was staying outside. Thankfully, he didn't want to go back in either. Was it my gut picking up on how many houses people were crammed in such a small space, or that next door was a rental with some rough-looking types living there? 
Who knows? But I'm glad we went with the house we went with. I'm really glad I listened to GSG and RLGS. Even if there are perfectly rational explanations for everything, when it comes to buying a home, no matter why you have a weird gut feeling, it's important not to feel off in your home. As always, much love to the whole GSG team. Keep up the amazing work and thank you for helping me keeping my sanity whilst mowing our annoyingly large lawn. <laughs> thank you, Rebecca. And yeah, man, if you're buying a house, man, I can't imagine what that's like. But if you're buying a house, you've got to make sure you feel good there. I, I remember I used to follow this blog way back in the day of the blogs. And this woman, she bought a condo without checking to see whether or not her cell phone worked there. The day she moved in, she realized, oh no, there is no cell service in this condo. I, I don't know if it was the thickness of the construction or what it was, but her, her phone just didn't work. And I remember thinking, how daft do you have to be to not check that before you buy a place? I, I mean, man alive, you, you got to feel <laughs> comfy in your home. Absolutely. Of course, yeah. There's a, there was a, a viral house sale that went everywhere over here the other day where um, they'd got pictures of um, some very, very strange individuals. Some people think it was a joke to get traction on the internet for this listing and other people just think it's very disturbing. However, some of the characters that they'd got in framed pictures on their walls included Jimmy Savile, uh, Peter Sutcliffe, oh, the Yorkshire no. Ripper, Hitler... Margaret Thatcher and numerous others um, and within about two hours those pictures which featured the portraits had mysteriously vanished from the listing and have never been seen again. I'm shocked. Oh, that's just in poor taste. Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much, Rebecca. Next up is from Annie. Annie says, your podcast is just as entertaining as another Vancouver podcast, sadly recently ended, Caustic Soda. Well, thank you, Annie. That's very kind. And uh, it's always nice for me to be associated with uh, stuff that happens over on the West Coast. Because this show, you know, we do very well in the US. We do pretty well in, in the UK. We get very little traction in Canada, especially on the West Coast. So it's always nice when uh, folks associate us with, with the big city over there. Next up. It's from Davey. I've been meaning to send you fan mail for quite some time, actually. But the egregious assertion on a recent episode that Clamato is only a Canadian thing is what finally has made me write in. It may have originated in Canada, but it definitely exists in the US. And I'm actually just Googled it. And it didn't originate in Canada. It originated in New York. That's no excuse. I'm now wondering if I misheard or misinterpreted the claim about Canada. If so, disregard this paragraph. If I did. I'm also perplexed by Paul's squeamishness about Clamato. Is it the clam part or the tomato part that grosses him out? Because I've lived in the UK and I know what they eat and I don't think his disgust is fair or warranted. <laughs> also for the record, I love British food and I think it is unjustly maligned. But white bait is a thing. Ugh, white bait. Ugh. The other thing I wanted to comment on was... Maybe six weeks ago, you mentioned casually that you had been considering throwing in the towel on the podcast, and my heart dropped. I'm very glad you reconsidered. I love the podcast. I think you and Paul may be the only people I have a parasocial relationship with. I come and go with other podcasts, but I would truly miss GSG and all its related content if it went away. Like, in a losing a friend way. I hope GSG has some years left in it yet. Anyway... I appreciate you both immensely for everything that you do. It's been said before, but your frank discussions on mental health and personal evolution 
is very much appreciated. I wish I had a cool story to send you, but I'm extremely non-psychic, and I'm happy to keep it that way, I think. Well, thank you, Davey. I mean, I got to tell you, it, it, I don't think having the experiences is, is that much of an improvement on uh, on not having them, because, I don't know, <laughs> Depends, you sleep, I feel like you sleep better. <laughs> yes, I would just like to say, I like clams, and I like tomatoes. I just don't like them together, you know? <laughs> I'm bringing some, I tell you. I'm bringing some with me. <laughs> I'll be letting Border Patrol know. <laughs> we're getting tasered. He's in got your a ass. gun. <laughs> Get him, boys. Look what he's done to that tomato. <laughs> Kill him. For How Christ. dare he do that to the king's fruit? Oh, God. I, I, I'm gonna, I'll try and thin out the Clamato content after this because I feel like you know it's going to reach a point of diminishing returns but man I just love how we touched a nerve again six years <laughs> the biggest thing that's happened in this show is talking about Clamato juice yeah. I'll have to I'll have to try and find an English delicacy you've not had for, for when you come over my, I'm never eating white bear again I'll tell you that much I once said it recommend I once once went to an Italian friend with a with a lawyer friend of mine who I've known for a very long time he was ironically one of my senior bosses now and that's all I'll say about that matter he loves this beautiful old school Italian restaurant we've got in Sheffield called Rossi's, which is in an old bank. Beautiful. Love it. Food's amazing. And uh, he always, he's one of, you know, he gets really offended if you try and buy anything, if you go out with him, like pay for meals or drinks. He gets really annoyed. Really annoyed. Like, what, what are you doing? Put your money away. Put your money away. Like that. <laughs> which is fine. Well, he goes, pack your money away. What are you doing, you slag? Pack your money away. <laughs> Um, so you do. And I said, oh, no, I don't know what to have for me starter. He said, oh, don't worry, mate, I'll sort it. See, I'm doing the accent there. Don't worry, mate, I'll sort it. I'll order it. And then it's all good. I said, yeah, all right, Rach, no problems. So it turned up and he'd ordered two portions of white bait and it turned up. And I'm like, what's this? And he went, it's white bait. It's bloody lovely. Get down, yeah. And I had about three and I thought, I can't eat something that's looking at me. Because <laughs> oh. it's just it's just baby fish. Yeah. In and, you know, they're not in a batter or anything, you know. I mean, I even, you know, I'm not a big fan of pulling the heads off prawns. Never mind dissecting a fish. And it's full of bone. I mean, what are you, what's he doing there? Not eating something that might kill me. That's it. I don't understand the appeal of fish for that reason. Would you like to have dinner with tiny needles in it? No, thank you. I wouldn't. Yeah. It's like somebody once recommended shark. And I said, I'm not eating shark. And they said, why? Because sharks urinate through the skin. I did not know that. I'm not eating that. Dirty buggers. <laughs> I, for some reason, I would feel weird eating shark. Mm. It's like when, when I was in Iceland, I, I was talking to these, these gals and they had eaten whale steak. And I, don't, I just felt weird about that. I don't know why. I mean, yeah. again, I'll eat, I, you know, a lot of, I eat cow, I eat all that crap. I've had springbok, I've had ostrich, you know, all that, all that jazz, alligator. But for some reason, I felt weird about eating, I would feel weird about eating shark or whale. I don't know what the difference is. Yeah. I've eaten whale once in Scandinavia. How was it? But, um, uh, it was it was like tuna, I think. Ugh. It's like swordfish. Swordfish just tastes like tuna. I just think, well, what's the point then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. Nothing will ever beat the sensation of eating roll mop, and and um, I will never go through that sensation again. Oh, is that the herring wrapped around shit? <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> in pi pickled pickled herring wrapped around shit is what it is. That's it. Yeah. Oh. I can eat anything. I've got a real strong constitution. Honestly. I like Roll Mop. I'm like Wayne Newton in Ford Fairlane when he eats that Volibon and he's like, 
<laughs> I would like that. I will say just briefly on the subject of weird food. When I was in Iceland, uh, I don't know, it keeps coming up. Jeez, it was 15 years ago or something, 16 years ago. I don't know why it's coming up now, but uh, I was I was on this guided tour of the north and it was, for some reason, it was only two of us on this tour. It was me and this German girl and the repi was the tour guide. He took us to this place and he said, well, try the, try the salmon. They had salmon on, um, this is back before I was allergic to salmon, which I am now, sadly, shaved salmon on bread. And he said, the bread, he said, the bread they bake in the ground. They, they put them, the drums in the ground and they, you know, they put the bread in the drums and cover it and it, yeah, the, the, the geothermal heat bakes it. Mm-hmm. So I had, had the salmon. It was, it was really tasty. And we got back in the van and Reppy says, did you try it? And we're like, yep. And he kind of laughs and he said, well, good. What do you think they smoked the salmon with? And he said, look around. Do you see any trees? Nope. And he starts up the van. He drives away. He says, they smoke it with bricks of sheep shit. You know what that is? It's a load of bollocks. <laughs> oh, oh, my heart hurts. <laughs> my <Bang>. heart hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Our next message is from Isaac. Isaac says, Dear Paul and Brennan, I'm an archaeologist, or more accurately, an archaeological field technician. The dig I'm at right now is in the middle of Miami and is thought to have been used by various native groups as a ceremonial complex and where they let corpses decay before final burial. It is on the other side of the river from both the main graveyard, under the Whole Foods, and habitation area and has almost no dwelling places but crap tons of small bones and ritual objects. It's thought by most scholars that the reason for this was so the less desirable or even dangerous elements of the soul could break off in a place where they could both be contained and used in various rituals before the corpses were put back where the living could honor them. Interesting. Or in simpler words, the spiritual version of a water treatment plant. The reason I'm bringing this up is I just revisited episode 101 and was fascinated by how Brennan said the soul becomes more primal and how the wife said her husband's spirit stopped feeling like him over time. I was wondering if you meant that they become more non-human and instinctual, or if they go back to their divine platonic prime essence. Because if it's the former, that might mean that the intelligent part of the soul has faded, and the subtle body is just going on autopilot. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts, evidence, or sources for this idea. I'll end with the obligatory, I'm a big fan of the show, and can't wait for the next installment. I'd say if you're ever in Miami, I'd do something, but due to the nature of my job, I have no idea where I'll be in a month, let alone a year. But if you're where I am and I know, I'd love to buy either of you a drink. Sincerely. Isaac. Well, Isaac, should the opportunity ever presented itself, done deal. Um, I mean, first off, I, as we always like to say, there is no evidence. There's none. There's no evidence for any of the things we talk about on the show. That's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. It's funny that episode 101 has come up twice in the last little while, Paul. Um, I don't remember that specific conversation, but I, I do know what you're talking about, and I'll be, I can be a little more open about it now. Uh, that was my mother who that happened to. So my, my stepfather passed in 20... 13, if I remember right. And once she came back to Revelstoke, my mother would sometimes feel him behind, like behind her in bed, like he was laying there. But over time, it felt less like him. And I think what I meant was, I believe the longer you are gone, the things that accumulated around you as a person here, the more they fall away and you become your, yeah, I guess the more purely spiritual parts of you. So you become less recognizable to us because we know each other essentially on our human characteristics, much of which are shaped by the environment. You know, I think we start off as a certain kind of person and I think we are then shaped by our environment. So I think 
if you, when you die, you are then left with the bits that over time, the, the learned things fall away and you are just the most essential you. Actually, a, a great example of this, I don't think they'll mind me saying this. I have some friends, really some of the closest friends I have. A while back, they took mushrooms together and they were out in the woods. She said that when she looked at him after the mushrooms, she saw him as a completely different person. She said like she saw that the person he was, the person she, she has known all her life and, and, who, and who she loves. But she said that beneath that, there was something much older and uh, much, she put it kind of grumpier. And she said that that thing that he was underneath that, this ancient part of him did not want to be disturbed or seen. And so I think the idea is that, you know, the, the person she knows as her partner, he is all those things. But as you say, like this water purification idea of it, you know, you lose some of those things as you ascend. The, 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 the further away you are from here, the less you are, some of the more noticeable things about you. And, and I think people find that, and of course, I'm talking to my ass, no one knows. But I think that's a difficult thing for people to process because we have this idea of the afterlife. And I blame, a lot. I blame, you know, this is, I mean, it's a religious thing, but it's also a popular media thing, a psychic thing. You know, everyone has this idea that grandma and grandpa are going to be waiting for you just the way they were when they passed. And it's going to be like you were, and everything's going to be, you're just going to pick up where you left off. And I genuinely think I don't like, if there is an afterlife guys, it's not like that. You know, it, it, there's no reason to think that you would stop. You know, we develop all throughout this life. The idea that we would develop and then be in stasis after that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I, I, again, I, I know people get really upset at the idea that the person they lost might not be the one who's waiting for them when they get there, or maybe even won't be waiting for them when they get there. But I, I genuinely think that if that is the case, I think by the time you get there, you won't care either. And which is not to say that's going to be the case, but there has to be a way to, to reconcile multiple loves in life with the afterlife. Like we, we have to, if, if we are going to believe in an afterlife, we have to reconcile these things. We have to make them work together. We can't just say, well, loves and love and wishes. Cause that, that doesn't work. This is why people don't take it seriously. So if you say, well, I, I know I had a wife and I, I loved her very much and we split up or she passed, but then I had another wife, you know, when I met someone else and we, we loved her, we love each other very much. Well, how do you reconcile which one of those people you will meet in the afterlife if you truly believe that will love, you know, survives? Well, you, you can't. And again, it, it requires, it requires some really adult processing of emotions that I, I think people, a lot of folks are not equipped to do, you know, because you have to, people get this idea. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm this, this, I'm going on a bit, but this one really kind of resonates with me. I think we have a very adolescent notion, many of us, of what constitutes love. And I blame the modern institution of marriage for part of this. I think we tell each other that, you know, and you and I've talked about this, this idea that romantic love trumps everything, that romantic love is more important than anything. And people throw away their friendships for romantic love, which is insane because romantic love, the one thing we know about it is it can, it comes and it goes. And to trade away these other, uh, relationships for this other thing is, is madness. But I think we have this really adolescent understanding of, of emotion and connection and love because it's all or nothing. It's, well, this is, this is my 100%, 1000%. I will only ever love this person. They will only ever love me. And if anything deviates from that, it is a betrayal. 
And I think that is just a child's notion of how people work. And, and I think in order to process how the possibility of the afterlife may work, we have to step into our emotional maturity and let some of that shit go. Yeah, definitely. And, and plus, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's one of those concepts that it is very old fashioned now. I think it's something that sort of hung around since the birth of spiritualism at the end of the 19th century. And it has very little relevance these days, like you say, you know, some people get married two or three times. They've married those people because they believe they were in love with them. Just because they ended up not being in love with them anymore doesn't matter. They started it and they will all be very different sensations. They love their pets. They love their friends. They love their relatives. They sometimes hate their relatives. How do you know who's going to be waiting for you if they are waiting for you? Yeah. Is it going to be, which pet is it going to be? Which wife is it going to be? Which partner could it be? That, I've never really understood. It's a very archaic and old-fashioned religious slant on, on the potential of the afterlife and basically saying, stay faithful, even if you're unhappy, and they'll be there. I mean, that's the last thing you need. Jesus Christ, if you've spent 50 years living with somebody who, you hated after two years of marriage, but because of the circumstances, you couldn't leave them for whatever reason. The last thing you want to see at the end of it is them. Just be- because they might really love you, but you might bloody hate them. That's so it. How does that work? They're like, oh, brilliant, you're here. You're like, fuck off, I got rid of you five years ago. I'm not spending, a- I'm not spending eternity with you. <laughs> On your back, buddy. That's it, right? I mean, there's a simplistic notion of romantic, like there's, there's friend love and there's romantic love. And romantic love is like, it's the goal. That's the brass ring. Once you get that, you got it. And there's only one kind and you're only allowed one. And it's insane. It's just insane because love is many, many things. And to some people, the same love that sets them free is a prison to the other person. I don't even want to think about who's waiting for me. Jesus Christ. (laughs) If it's before 1995, I'll be worried. If it's after 95, I can roll with it. If it's before 1995, it's going to be flatliners. (laughs) It will be. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ask your grandparents, kids. <laughs> yeah, watch the original, not the remake, please. The remake? But, um, oh, I don't, I don't remember hearing about uh, that. Good point. That's my my line, and I've let myself down. I'm yeah, sorry. I'm stealing that one. Now, if anything deserves it, it's flatline. But um, I, I uh, going back to to our, our writer, that was the first thing I wanted to be growing up. I I loved archaeology. I was obsessed with it. So. Uh, I'm insanely jealous of anybody who is a professional archaeologist. I know there's not much treasure in it, and a lot of it's digging through crap and being dirty and sweaty and underpaid a lot of the time and fighting for grants. But uh, I've always had an interest in that, um, and it led me to my love of paleontology as well. And so uh, it's something that stayed with me for 45 years. So uh, thank you for sending us a line, and... Uh, Please be aware I'm very jealous of, of anybody that's an archaeologist in Miami because you could dig all year, I would imagine, as well. There. Oh, I, I have to imagine. I, and Isaac, that, that goes for me too. I'm deeply jealous. Uh, so happy you wrote in. That is fascinating stuff. And uh, if you ever want to share further things with us, uh, please do let us know. Yeah, especially any treasure you find. Yes, maybe 1,000%. <laughs> Our final message this evening is from Tracy. And Tracy says... I was just listening to episode 121 and was interested to hear Paul's experience in Glencoe and thought I'd share mine with you. As a small child, probably around three years old, my parents took me and my older brother and sister for a holiday to Scotland and for whatever reason that I'm not aware of, we were driving through Glencoe at night. 
I can remember it as it was very unsettling, but this is a story that both mum and dad could recall and we would talk about it as a family sometimes. As we drove along in the dark in our trusty Vauxhall Victor, <laughs> suddenly the temperature in the car became very cold and there was a sudden feeling of dread come over all of us. All three of us kids started crying in fear and it was then that we came across a figure in the headlights in a hooded cloak, just like the Grim Reaper. Needless to say, my mum was scared witless and dad just drove past as fast as he could as even though he was a very good Samaritan, I guess he sensed that something wasn't right and having his family in the car thought it best not to stop. Thank you for making my sleepless nights bearable. I guess it seems silly to try and sleep when you live alone and listen to ghost stories. I find your sense of humour similar to mine, as in in Python-esque, and I find your compassion truly sincere. Keep up the wonderful podcasts. I cannot believe the amount of material you produce. I shall set a reminder to become a patron when I'm not laying in the dark. Take care, fellas. There you are, see. Not just me who's had a strange experience, but that's that's a brilliant story, Tracy. Thank you. Yes, that is very cool. I love. I, I do love a, a terrifying hooded figure on the road. And there's nothing to be ashamed of listening to ghost stories in the dark, Tracy. That's what I do every night. I listen to a, a variety of podcasts. And uh, I have to say, sometimes if I'm in a certain sleepiness, listening to Whitley Strieber's old interviews with Art Bell from the end of the 90s and the early noughties, if it catches me and I'm in the right sort of sleepiness, I find them quite frightening. I believe it. And I still fall asleep. So make them <laughs> up what you will. And then I have terrible <laughs> nightmares. <laughs> I had an awful dream the other week, but um, it wasn't a nightmare, but it was a very odd dream. Oh, no. I dreamt I, I was at the funeral of a work colleague who I know. Oh, yikes. Mm. They haven't passed away. Well, yikes. Let's hope it stays that way. Yes. Sometimes our brains are just assholes. Very true. But yes. And it's interesting. I'll see if there's been any more reports of that, because I know a lot of people in that area report seeing clansmen and stuff, but not necessarily, obviously not. <laughs> Not the clansmen that might be well known in, in North America, the clansmen as in the Scottish clans. Yeah, I'm glad we um, made that distinction. Th th yeah, that, that would stand out even more if you've got somebody in a white hood running about the dark passages of Glencoe, then I think that would stand out even more than a, the Grim Reaper turning up, to be honest. The car just passed right through him, and I tried. I tried to hit him. <laughs> I just couldn't run the bastard over. I tried backing over him, forward, nothing. <laughs> Could even set him on fire. <laughs> We're going back next weekend. We're going to try again. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who wrote in. Believe me when I say when I say we read every message we get. So even if it doesn't make it on the show, we are hearing it. We are reading it. Thank you so, so much. We're going to take a quick break to pay the bills, and we'll be right back with Steve Stred talking about his latest book, The Color of Melancholy. Welcome back. As promised before the break, we are joined by a guest. You've heard us talk about him on the show before. You've heard the ads. He is the one, the only, the author of the brand new memoir, Color of Melancholy. He is my fellow Canadian, Steve Stred. Steve, welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure, man. Like I said, we, we've uh, we've done those, those fun ads for you before uh, <laughs> and said ridiculous things that you thankfully went along with. So it's, it's nice to finally, finally have you here. How, how's life treating you? Good. Yeah. And, uh, I'm pretty much up for anything for ads. I'm, uh, I enjoy the serious and I enjoy the funny. So it's been, it's always been great when you send them over and hearing what they are. So very cool. So Steve, as I mentioned, you've got a, a brand new book out. You've got a color of melancholy. 
your memoir. I'm only about halfway through it, I have to admit, but I've, I've been loving it so far. How has the response been? Better than expected. I figured it would be something where I would be the only person to buy a copy. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's one of those things where I did it more kind of as a, a cathartic experiment. And um, all through my life, everyone's always said, like, you should journal, you should journal. And I'm just not a journaler. And at this stage in life, I'm, I don't think I have the time to dedicate to seeing like a counselor full on. Um, right. So this was kind of my way of journaling and, you know, almost self-counseling by putting the puzzle pieces of my life together and, and, and just kind of finding that common thread throughout all of it. Um, but yeah, the response has been amazing. I was pleasantly surprised. That's very cool. And the book is almost uh, an examination of how your life has intertwined with the work of Andrew Piper. Yeah. So, um, uh, geez, what's it been, two, two years ago that me and Andrew were on together? Uh, yeah, about that. Some, somewhere around there. But uh, again, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, which um, I kind of begin some of the book with. And I never really had access to Goodreads. There wasn't internet back then when I was younger. And, you know, our, our, our town library was very, very small. So it's not like I had a lot of options for what I wanted to read and what interested me. And it was, you know, 20, 2015 or so when I first kind of stumbled across Andrew's books. And it was just one of those ones where it, it immediately spoke to me and I found it phenomenally fascinating that here is this author who's writing this type of fiction who is Canadian and lives in Canada. And I couldn't believe it, but there's also just been this odd, I don't know if synchronicity is the right phrase for it, but whenever, whenever something crazy is going on, his books tend to be around for it. And so much so that, uh, me and you are participating in a, in a read-along of one of his books here in September. Um, but I decided to reread one of his books recently. And, you know, I had somebody in the family passed away. And it's just one of those things where somebody passed away in my family and I happened to be reading one of Andrew's books. And it's just, it's odd how it's always this strange connecting of dots between a major life event and I always happen to be involved in one of Andrew's books. Yeah, you, you open the book with a pretty harrowing story of your wife and son, uh, basically your son's, your son's birth and very brief death. And you talk about that happening while you're reading the wildfire season. Yeah. And I got to say, man, that, I, that my heart was in my throat. Yeah, I, I've been trying to warn people about chapter one. And I think in every single blurb I've, I've received from it, people have said something about you know, the opening chapter or that first chapter kind of kicks them in the stomach or, you know, kind of rocks them. And I thought it was a a prudent chapter to start with so that people can also trust that I'm not really going to be holding back, that sure. uh, it's not a, a, a lukewarm retelling of, of things. I, I'm, I'm pretty descriptive and I'm pretty you know, outgoing about, about that. And uh, it, it's just one of those things where I felt to, to build trust with the readers who have only read me fictionally in a nonfiction piece, you need to have not only that kind of big bang at the start that you usually have in a fiction piece, but also that, okay, like, you know, he, he's going to be honest and open about things. Um, and then, yeah, of course, it just happened to be that I had just literally started reading the wildfire season and I didn't even know the book was gone because we removed rooms and then the nurse brought it back to me a few days later when I was leaving the hospital. And it was just crazy that in Foothills Hospital in Calgary that has all these people in coming and coming and going that she saw me in the, the lobby area and, and had it to grab for me, right? So 
I cracked the book when I was on a, a harbor flight over to Vancouver last week uh, because uh, a friend of mine was uh, suddenly ill and I wanted to go t- check on him. And uh, I, it, given the nature of my trip, reading that opening chapter, I actually had to put it away for a while oh, because it, it was just, it was too, um, yeah, it was a little too close to the bone. Because again, you, you don't hold back and it's, it's hairy. And th- th- I, I really admire that man because that's something I don't know if I would have the same courage to be able to be so open about things like it, not just the chapter with what happens to your wife, Amanda and, and your son, but to really just in general, to be open about your, what your perceived flaws and, and faults and, and really the growing up stuff. You know, you, you and I grew up in similar places. Uh, yeah. You're actually very geographically close to each other. Yeah. Like uh, as we two, discovered two hours, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Tops. And you're very open about some of the negative things about the way you were raised by your family. And again, I must imagine that's, that's a difficult thing to be open with because I, I imagine people don't like reading that about themselves. Again, I think for a long time, especially, I mean, um, uh, Paul, I'm not sure how, how many people were kind of where you lived when you grew up, but I know like with Brendan, you, Revelstoke had a bit more than the cusp surrounding area, not much, but a bit more. But for a long time, you know, you're almost ashamed of, of having been from this small, small town. And um, e- even now, like... Um, oddly enough, this morning, one of the people I saw at work here um, just came back from uh, going out to see one of his family members in Castlegar, which isn't far from where um, you and I grew up. And immediately I was like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. Like, I'm from the cusp. And then it, it's so ingrained in me to say I'm from the cusp, even though I'm not from the cusp. I'm from somewhere even smaller and, and outside of it. But if you were to to try to find Burton on a map, you're not going to find it, right? You'll, you'll, you'll find Kelowna first. And then from there, you'll you know, find Vernon and then Rebel. So like, it'll take you a bit to even find the cusp. So I'm kind of that weird product of how I grew up, but also wanting to be the big city kid. So I relate to having like the party line growing up and I relate to playing on the men's soccer team while one of the town's physicians is on the men's soccer team. And it's weird that, you know, you play soccer with him and then you see him for a checkup. And then on the weekend, he's partying with you in the bush, you know, like, um, so it's just, it's this weird kind of like, you know, environment where you're like, man, this is cool that I grew up in the middle of nowhere in the woods. But then you're also like, I hated growing up in the middle of nowhere in the woods because we only had three TV channels. The Sears catalog was our, our mall, you know, stuff like that. Um, (laughs) and I, and I know like, you know, I, I try to say it not to be a spoiler for you in the book. I try to say it later on that. I know, I know my parents tried to do the best they could, but there's a lot of us who grew up in similar situations, which I'm, I'm finding out where our parents really did consider us as, you know, a a nuisance and kids that should be there just because you have kids and, they need to be quiet and they need to stay by themselves in the corner because the adults are visiting. And the book's almost been out a week now. And even in that short time, the few people have read it, I've had a lot of messages from them saying, that's so crazy. Like, that's the same thing that I had growing up where my parents, you know, we were, we were a nuisance. We were in the way we were, you know, we, we did stuff as a family, but it was stuff that they wanted to do and the kids were just there. So it hurts to hear so many people say that, but at the same time, we're kind of considered that generation of change where now I'm trying to be better than they were to me. And, and we all know the world's going crazy right now. So the more nicer and kinder we can be, I think the better. 
Absolutely. Paul, was that like that for you growing up? Were kids sort of meant to be, you know, the, the seen and not heard kind of thing? Well, usually they were just born into a life of servitude. So from an early yep. age, you're trained how to make grandparents' cup of tea, their preferred way, um, and how right. to, you can go, go to the shops and buy their cigarettes and alcohol for them because you take a note with you. Um, yeah. And they yep. always say, well, don't, don't smoke that on the way back or don't open it, don't drink that. So uh, it, obviously it wasn't that, you know, there was... My, my high school, which was in the here, there was 1,400 pupils. So it wasn't, you know, we we're a small mining village, really. But um, it wasn't that small because they're all separate communities, but they're all very, very close together. And in some places, you'll not know where one village stops and the other starts. But the people who live there know. They know where that border is. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it's very strange that I think... When you do something like that, Steve, it's quite cathartic. I know somebody from over here I've got to know quite well, Paul Sinclair, recently, his last book was, was kind of a, a paranormal memoir of his, his life growing up and the strange experiences. But there was also a lot of rawness about his upbringing and how he was treated, that kind of, you know, speak when you're spoken to and then other than that, just keep out of the way. And I think for a lot of us growing up in that sort of 70s and 80s era, most of the time, I suppose a lot of people were like that. I was very fortunate. My family were very kind of happy to congregate and hang around. And there was always, you know, tons of relatives at Christmas and people had always come around on a Saturday. So, and we were always kind of encouraged to, to, to join in. But um, there was always times where, you know, parents wanted to watch something on the television and we'd get told to bugger off. So yeah. <laughs> it's the same the world over, it would seem. Yeah, I'm curious, Paul, in terms of the small town thing, did you have that where you would, uh, you know, the kind of, there weren't as many class divisions, so you would you would see, say, the town doctor or the town mayor doing something crazy, and then, uh, you know, Friday he'd be, uh, or Monday he'd be back in the office looking looking proper? <laughs> oh, no. There is a there is a very, even even in a rough and tough mining village like ours, there is a, there is a divide. There is the haves and the haves nots, and the majority of us were the have nots. But there were the people because there's a couple of very posh schools near here as well. Uh, right. One was a grammar school uh, that had it, uh, its own bus service that came around and picked everybody up. So obviously, all those locals used to throw eggs at their bus because that's what <laughs> that would teach them, wanting to bet themselves. How dare they? Um, and then there was also a, a couple of there was Wakefield Girls School and Queggs, which was Queen Elizabeth's grammar school, which were both near one was in wakefield one was near wakefield and a lot of people kind of gravitated that would be i've made it i've got out educational wise i've gone right i've gone across the border i can do it so there was always that kind of temptation for a lot of people that sort of one people wanted to move upwards without sort of moving away if that makes sense that whole private school thing, that's completely foreign to me as a concept because obviously where i grew up in revelstoke again not far from burton where steve grew up there used to be maybe four elementary schools and that was, there was elementary schools and then one high school. The idea of a private school didn't even occur to me. Yeah. And then I came here to, to Victoria where there's this St. Michael's University school. Everyone calls it the you know, SMU. And to me, it's just another high school, I thought. And then I was educated like, no, you rube, you buffoon. This is where you go when you matter, where you, when you have money. And I thought, oh, that's why I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, I passed the entrance exam for Quags, but I wouldn't go. I just wanted to prove I could get in. But I didn't want to know. <laughs> uh, the Paul Bessel story started early. Yeah. Well, it, it really annoyed me, stepdad. Really annoying because he really wanted me to go there and I didn't want to go. So I thought, well, I'll prove I can get in. Because if I threw it and failed the exam, then he'd say, oh, well, you, you didn't deserve to go. 
but I smashed it. And then I said I didn't want to go. And he was livid. <laughs> and then you ended up on a phone call with me. So I guess he was right, Paul. <laughs> and 40 years later, I've regretted ever since. No, no. I, you know, it's just, yeah, that, that's not my, that's not me. It's not the kind of, I've met many people who went to that school. Nah, I'd have been expelled within a year, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Or on the news. <laughs> or, or both. Probably both, yeah. <laughs> When I was growing up, we had the same thing where it was really stratified, you know, very much a have and have nots, even though it was a, like a small town. Um, but I remember being, getting a little bit older and I think that's changing a little bit. I remember going to a party in Revelstoke, oh, maybe about 10 years ago. And there was this guy there and he was a local pharmacist and he was smashed, just smashed and not shy about being smashed. And someone said to him, they said, Hey, aren't you worried about, you know, like your reputation, you're here, you're gooned, you're, you're hitting on our friend. And he said, no, none of you people matter. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, maybe, maybe the stratification is still there. I'm not sure now that I think about it. <laughs> Paul, did you have anybody, um, and again, this might be a little bit naive or a little bit uh, uh, me not knowing more about it, but did you have anybody from your, your local, like from where you grew up who kind of made it to the big time? And that was kind of like, you know, for instance, everybody talks about like Black Sabbath, you mm. know, they come out and, and they you know, change the face of heavy metal music. And, and you, you think about some of these, um, um, you know, kind of working class folk who, who hit the big time. And, and we, we like, we don't have anybody like that. We our our stories from where, where, where I grew up in the cusp is, you know, like right now, the big one is, um, what's his name? Kim Coates, who was on Sons of Anarchy. Oh, yeah. Um, like every summer he's, he comes and, and goes out to the cusp for a couple of days to visit. And every time he does, it's like on the local Facebook page and people are, you know, can't believe that, you know, this guy has come, you know, to, to visit this town. Um, so we never had anybody who really kind of burst out and became like, you know, a big movie actor or musician or anything like that. I'm just curious, did you have that? Did you have that person who set out of those, those locks and chains and became a, a, a big face for everyone? We've got a few. Um, we've got several England cricketers from the area. Who, who got out. One of the most famous ones that we had around here is a local lad called Darren Goff, who was, who was a very uh, popular member of the England cricket team and a world-class performer. So we had several, we've had several cricketers make it. Several footballers have, have made it to the big time through all there. Um, Joanne Harris, the author who wrote Chocolat, she's from around here. Um, Kate Roysby, the world-known folk singer, she's from around here. And my uncle was the original drummer of Saxon and left them and went to work for Def Leppard for 20 years. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, some of them did all right. But uh, yeah. it, it was a very tortuous journey. If you, you, you basically, eat, unless you played sport where there was, you, you could play any sport around here, cricket, football, rugby union, and people would, you, you had a channel to, to find your way out. Mm -hmm. Music, nothing. You had to basically form a band and go somewhere else. So a lot yeah. of them kind of like Saxon did a lot of the, the pubs and clubs and then sort of gravitated towards Sheffield because there was a big metal scene in Sheffield and obviously Def Leppard were sort of coming through at the same time. So they were all yeah. able to sort of congregate in that area. Doncaster was another. Doncaster is very similar to Barnsley that it has that kind of, unless you're very specifically talented in a, in a certain way, it's just normal. Every that is, that is your only option. Normal life. That is it. And and Doncaster yeah. is the same. It's a massive rock 
venue place. It's always had a, a, a real love of, of metal and, and rock music for, for decades, but nobody makes it there. They all have to go. Even if they have to just go 10 miles down the road, Sheffield kind of pulled... Anybody in South Yorkshire got magnetically pulled into Sheffield's orbit, and then all of a sudden they're all from Sheffield then. Revelstoke had uh, the great Michael Buffero, director of such hits as 5G The Reckoning, <laughs> and uh, The Barber, starring Malcolm McDowell, so he's our guiding star. <laughs> Now I'd almost think Revelstoke's more known for the uh, the Red Bull guys who come there and film their videos and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's more known for the location. I, I remember the 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 Krusty Demons videos used to play in the uh, in the bars. Which Paul, I don't know if are you familiar with Krusty Demons? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's uh, it's a series of like snowboarding uh, uh. and snowmobile trick videos. And so though I think they used to shoot some of those around there, and they would always play them in the bars on the big screens. The big guy, his name was Warren Miller, right? That's who put out all those ski videos, I th- right? That, that sounds right. Yeah, so yeah. These, these ones Miller wanted to be yeah. these ones wanted to be like Warren Miller's, um, but only it was more more like kind of indie punk and and almost like bootlegged videos where you know one one would be released to a video store and the rest would then be re recorded over and over and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they sold exactly one copy and then it was everything else was just pirated pretty much yeah. <laughs> Steve, I was kind of curious. I'd love to, if you, if you to talk a little bit about how you were, because uh, obviously as you started to get out of Nakaspi, you still sort of had your, your adventures in the region. And of course, at one point you were a bartender, or sorry, not a bartender, you were a bouncer. Yeah. In a club. And I, I have to say, I'm not surprised because <laughs> you are a, you are a, a giant man yeah. in, in like, I remember when I, when I first met you, I'm like, oh, he could beat the shit out of me. I mean, <laughs> yep, that's. And I asked you, do you lift weights? And you're like, no. And I'm like, well, clearly at some point you have because you look like you were hewn from granite. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when I discovered, oh, this man was a bouncer. Yeah, that fits. But that that ended in truly horrifying fashion. I wonder if you just, it, I, I, just as a little bit of a, a teaser for the book, talk about that. Yeah, I think it's almost exact. Like we're right around the 20, I think the 20 year mark now, might be the 19 year mark. It's hard. All those early 20 years, they kind of blend together now. Uh, or those 2000s, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was one of those ones where there wasn't a lot of places to work and I kind of wanted a job that I didn't have to really do anything, but then also I could make some cash and have time to work out. And I mean, obviously this, this is almost like an entitled thinking. I wanted a job where I didn't have to work. I could make some cash under the table and I didn't have to work like five days a week. So I was renting a room for my friend, but his dad owned the house. And so he was working a bit as, as a bouncer at the kind of the one club at that time in Castlegar. And he was like, oh, I, I could see if, if they're looking for anybody else. Because no, none of the bouncers that were working there wanted to work there. Like they, it was all a second job for them. And they just kind of did it because they needed the bodies. And I was like, absolutely. Like, I, I don't drink. Like, I'm not going there to get drunk. I just, I, you know, I, I want to make the, I think it was like 20 bucks an hour for five hours a night and it was you know it was all cash and work you know four days a week from essentially 10 p.m till 2 a.m and the rest of the time was free and it was enough money to you know pay my rent and food and stuff so i was like okay this is perfect um and i I only worked there for a couple months because then one night um there was you know kind of a, a a mixture of odd groups kind of coming into the bar and one of them was a uh a bachelor party 
and him and his friends were out and at the same time there happened to be like a, a very low class version of like the thunder from down under Aussie strippers in town at the same time. So <laughs> we had all of these like drunk 40, 50 year old women coming to the bar. But we also had this group of drunk guys coming to the bar and the guy who was getting married was wearing a wedding dress with nothing underneath it. They didn't come till later. I think they got there about midnight. And so at about 11 o'clock, nobody was in the pub. It was dead. So they let four of the bouncers go. So there was just me and another bouncer, Pete, who was there. And Pete, I don't know what became of him in the years since, but he was the most unathletic, um, nerdy, out of shape guy I probably had ever met. Um, he had a big hunch back. He wore his <laughs> jeans up to his nipples. Um, he just, he, he was the, the, the polar opposite of what you think of as a bouncer. Uh, he was probably, he's probably five, seven, five, eight. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was pushing 400 pounds. Oh, um, man. so the guy with the, with the wedding dress kept lifting the dress up to show the women his um tackle box and they got upset with that and instead of pete kind of asking him not to do it pete forcefully told him not to do it and a massive fight broke out um pete scurried under a table somewhere which i found after but um essentially you know kind of the the two the, the two biggest guys in the entire town were there and one of them was helping us and the other one wasn't helping us and at one point me and this guy kind of came face to face and I was like like I we just need to stop this we need to get going and and as I was talking to him and he was kind of telling me that he would help out I just got smashed in the side of the head with something I'm pretty sure it was brass knuckles like I'm pretty sure the force that was used was something like that um, but I just kind of stumbled around and uh, one of the ladies that was there kind of grabbed me and pulled me outside and I was getting angry at her because I was like, why are you like, there's this thing going on inside. Why am I outside? And she was like, because you're hurt. And I didn't believe her. And then she had me bend over. And when I bent over, like the entire front of my shirt and pants just got covered in blood. Like I was just, I was bleeding profusely. Uh, and I was like, okay, like, sure, like whatever, I'm bleeding. Um, so I went back in and we got kind of got everything sorted. And um, the the police are an odd group in that they wouldn't come into the bar if the fight was still going on because of liability issues. So they had to wait till everybody left the bar to then kind of start clearing people out. Um, so everybody cleared out. Pete drove me to the trail hospital, which is about half hour away. And I got six stitches above my eye. And then a week later I went. Um, and so then at that point I couldn't, I couldn't see out of my one eye. It was swollen up, like, just massively. And they said, you know, you're going to have to get these stitches removed. We can't. They won't just dissolve. So a week later, I was in the cusp and uh, went to the our family doc to get them cut out. And she was like, did you have did you have x-rays done? And I said, no, I, I had these stitches. And she was like, okay, well, let's take the stitches out and we'll get x-rays done. And it was like my whole cheek, upper part of my face, like, all of it was, like, just smashed, fractured. I had a whole bunch of fragments surrounding my optic nerve. They thought I was going to either lose all the vision in my eye or lose my eye because of how, how much they were pressing against it because I, I had so much swelling internally. And so then essentially I was whisked away, which is out there is a three and a half hour drive to Kelowna for um, surgery. And then 
I think my surgery was delayed twice because emergency surgeries came in. So I got prepped for surgery twice and then twice it didn't happen. I think I wrote it in the book, but I, I actually have trouble remembering it. It was something like 175 fractures that they had to piece together. And they used a, uh, um, I don't know the, the phrase for it. It's like a bone putty um, to kind of put everything back together. And then it solidifies over time and kind of calcifies and doesn't become real bone, but enough of a real bone that your, your head looks normal-ish again. But yeah, it was like, geez, a year before I got my peripheral vision back. I was like dizzy most of the time. And so, yeah, so after the surgery, I spent that summer actually read all three of the Lord of the Rings books um, with one eye. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, just, I sat outside on a crappy camping chair and I would read the, I would essentially read all day. And then once uh, my now wife, but once Amanda, who's my girlfriend back then, once she was done her job, I would then, you know, either get a ride up to, to her place in the cusp from Burton or uh, uh, a few times I actually drove when I wasn't supposed to drive. Um, but then I would hang out with her and then kind of repeat the next day. But yeah, so it, it was uh, it was a strange, strange time kind of going through that. Well, if you've got one eye, Steve, Lord of the Rings is a good trilogy to read, sir. It's almost as yeah. if you're trying to emulate Sauron's eye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that it was because, it, I mean, as you know, Brendan, that area in the summertime can, can get awfully hot. And oh, yeah. so I'd be sitting out there and I would just start sweating and then the sweat would go into my eye. And I couldn't wipe it out, so it would just be burning. So then I would go and I would just, like, put a garden hose over my head while holding the book away because I didn't want it to get wet. And then I would go back and read some more until I would sweat into my eye, and yeah. What I find remarkable about that, Steve, is is you, you took that savage hit from Brass Knuckles, you spent a year healing, and then you thought, I'm going to get in a bobsled. Yeah. <laughs> this will protect the integrity uh, of my human yeah, frame. We wear helmets. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. I, I, I just loved that. I mean, obviously, I didn't know that, that about this about you until I met you in Toronto a couple months yeah. back that you had done this. It's wonderful because just just bonkers. And obviously, like the amount, of, um, the amount of work you put in to get where you got. I mean, you mentioned because you were originally uh, doing shot put. Yeah. And you were about uh, 370 pounds, as I recall you saying. Yeah, that was about the heaviest I got. Yeah. yeah, and then when you decided to do bobsled, obviously you had to you had to get get smaller, and you dropped a hundred pounds. Yeah, well, I mean, technically, I mean, over the course of eighteen months, it would have been a hundred and what's that math? Hundred and thirty pounds, hundred and twenty five wow. pounds, because I lost twenty five pounds to then be able to go up and try it the one time in Whistler, right. uh, just so I I knew I would fit into the sled. Um, because it's not, there's not a lot of space in there. Mm. Uh, but so then, yeah, I did that. And then kind of when I, I got the go ahead from um, Canada to be like, you know, if, if you can get to this, we want you at the, the tryout camps. Because I went to a couple of tryout camps at like 370 pounds. And, um, you know, I'm just like, there's like bobsled's a, a sport with big guys. Um, but then when you're, you know, 100 pounds heavier than the next guy, not only are you, you know, the slowest at the camp, but you're also the one that kind of sticks out. And, you know, all of the coaches were like, get the weight down because we want to see what you can do with that weight off because you're, you're fast-ish now. You theoretically, you'll be faster then. And so it was just one of those things where, you know, I just one-track mind. I was like, because since growing up, I've always wanted to be an Olympian. And even now, you know, knowing I'll never be an Olympian, a part of me is still like, man, it'd be cool to be an Olympian. 
but bobsled had never really been on my radar. It's the it's like that sport that every Winter Olympics comes on, everybody watches it, but then like nobody's ever done it, and everybody watches it because they want to see people crash, right? <laughs> um, so I didn't really know how to really go about getting into it, and it just kind of did the research on it, and I went up to Whistler and tried it the one time, and I was like, this is this is crazy, this is cool, and you know I had that kind of a, a epiphany moment standing on top of. Whistler Blackcomb of, you know, the snow coming down and my eyes looking at everything in slow motion and just being like, this is where I need to be, you know, in life. And, uh, it, and, and in the book, I make no qualms about how incredibly selfish that decision was as well. You have to be selfish to kind of pursue a goal like that, uh, much to the detriment of pretty much everybody else around you in your life. I say I wouldn't change a thing, but I, I, I would. Like if I had a redo of it, I don't, I don't know if I would have pursued it. Um, it's given me a lot of life experience and life moments and memories, but it's also the most difficult, hardest sport in the world, and my body's paid the price for that now. Yeah, there's a story in there, man, and we, we won't spoil it for our listeners because I, I do want them to go pick up the book, but you talk about a crash. And man, when I said the bartending or the bouncing story was harrowing, this is, this is next level. And you kept going back and I, I got to say how much I admire that. Yeah. I mean, again, completely foolish and kind of that immature young man mentality, even though I was like 30 at that point. Right. But, um, <laughs> you kind of had that invincibility in your head, but then at the same time, you know, I was battling, um, I was battling severe anxiety. I, I didn't know it at that time. I didn't know that this was a, I didn't know that was like, this is what a panic attack is, you know, when right. you're sitting in the room and you got to get ready to go. And then you think about just how, uh, how crappy your coach is towards you. And you start to struggle to have to breathe and you feel like you're going to puke. And, you know, suddenly you, you think you're having a heart attack, you know, and your, your roommate, who's at that time, you know, he was a, um, a skeleton athlete on the national team. He's like, you know, like, what's going on with you, man? Like, let's go. We got to get going. And, and, you physically don't know if, if, you know, if you're going to live for another minute because you're just like in the throes of this. And then, you know, you mention it to your coach and, and you get, you know, just completely dumped on about not being a real man. And, you know, just, just that old school coach mentality of, of suck it up or don't suck it up and get out of my way. And so it, it, was, it was a tough one because for many years, and I try not to sound arrogant, but for many years, I was always one of the, the bigger people in a room and one of the people who could lift more weight than a lot of the other people. And then the person that you're looking for guidance from kind of just, you know, doesn't give that to you and, and treats you like crap. It, it It's tough. It's a tough thing. Obviously, the, the coach you're describing, as you say in the book, he is someone people will know if they are familiar with sort of the more famous, uh, the famous um, bobsled teams that they will know who this coach is. Yeah. And it was, it was shocking. And, and not just his behavior, but the general treatment of Canadian athletes, the funding, it, I, I was really surprised by that. If you're in Canada, you're hearing a lot of the stories come out, especially over the last kind of few years of, of kind of the, the poor treatment. But I think the, the harder thing to kind of accept is that it's, you know, in the sliding sports for sure, and, and it's happening in other sports as well, but from top to bottom, doesn't matter what level you're at, whether you're, you know, uh, Kaylee Humphreys, who's a, a multi-Olympic gold medalist who ended up leaving the country to compete for the U.S., or you're just somebody starting out trying to get your foot in the door, you, you were treated poorly and you were treated like crap. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're just, 
your body bag with numbers, right? How how fast can this athlete X push? If he's not pushing faster than athlete Y, then you know, see you later. It's sobering stuff, man. So we only have C for a limited amount of time, so we're we're gonna start winding it down. But before we go, of course, this is a ghost show. And Steve, you've had well, you you had your own ghostly encounter, which you document in the book, and we've actually shared the other story. You have Amanda's story yeah. on the show previously, but you tell it in such a way that it's not even really a ghost story. This is just a thing that happened, and I love stories like that because that's typically the way these things these things happen. Prior to you having your experience, which again we'll let folks read about in the book, did you have much of a much of a, a sense of that kind of thing? Were you a believer in ghost stories? I don't know if I was a believer. I was. I think I've always been somebody who's like, you know, I want a believer. And right. growing up out there, I was always more like Bigfoot and Ogopogo. Sure. You know, especially like I've been devouring Arlene Gall's um, Ogopogo books. And, uh, um, you know, my aunt worked for her as a cleaner for like one brief summer in Vernon. And, cool. Um, oh, cool. And she, she had some of her books that she gave to me. And, you know, so there's kind of a connection of like, like this person's a real person. It's not just somebody, you know, ma- making up stories of a thing in the lake. So I was always more kind of on that fence of the creature side of it, you know, and, and on the ghost side of it, it was like, well, maybe they can happen. But then, yeah, like, you know, Amanda's wholeheartedly a believer in ghosts. And so then, you know, kind of had that experience. It's in the book. And it was just like, like, oh, OK, well, this is this is something different. This is a, <laughs> this is a new thing to try to process. <laughs> As I recall, your father did he, he told you a Sasquatch story? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, again, it's one of those um, small town ones where uh, Lemon Creek kind of towards Winlaw um, right. is kind of a hotbed of, of Bigfoot sightings. And my dad spent his entire life in the bush as a logger. And so I, I always was asking him, like, have you seen Sasquatch? Have you seen Bigfoot? Um, and he, again, he's he's always been somebody who's been like, you know, it's possible. I mean, if you spend any time in, in British Columbia woods, you know, they're massive. It, they they're It's hard to put it into scope how big it is. And there's there's people who have lived in the British Columbia wilds their entire lives who've, who've never seen a cougar. Um, you know, there's people who've lived in the, the woods in BC their entire lives, never seen a black bear, um, you know. And, and so for me, you know, Bigfoot has always been a, a, a plausible possibility. Um, there's a lot of wilderness there. And so my dad, you know, he told me the story because I had asked about about it. And um, so the guy who owned the logging company that he worked for at the time had stopped to get a drink at the Lemon Creek um, Creek there because it's, you know, the fresh water type thing. And all of those old guys always swore by, you know, you got to fill up your, your water by at the creek. And, you know, my grandpa did that too, always had to stop on the way to Vernon because there was one specific runoff of water that's the cleanest water in all of the world. <laughs> but so in Lemon Creek, this guy had stopped, a big guy, he's probably six, five, six, six, um, and just one of the big, big bush guys. And he filled up his jug and I guess he stood up and looked over. And at the same time, this hairy hominid stood up and looked over and they were, you know, 20, 30 feet away from each other on the other sides of the the creeks. And they both just kind of looked at each other for a bit. And then he slowly went back up to his truck and drove away. And he said he never could explain what it was, but he said it towered over him. And and so it's just one of those things. And I think on, is it the BC Bigfoot, BCBR? There's, there's, they have their own website. 
But if you go on there, um, there's like hundreds of reported sightings along that area of, you know, p potential Bigfoot in that in that spot. So, yeah, always has fascinated me. Even I've heard of Lemon Creek all the way over here because of its yeah. uh, its reputation as being a hot spot in that particular area for uh, for sightings. I mean, that just shows you as well, Steve. You know, you've got an experienced outdoorsman spends his life outside. He clearly knows what he saw, and he clearly knows what it wasn't. And yet people yeah. go, nah, nah, yeah. no, you're wrong. You've seen a bear. That one's interested me specifically because he's one of those guys who's not a BSer. Yeah. Um, you know, he's one of those guys who, if you asked him, he would have told you the story. But if he didn't, he's not, you know, mm. trying to, to let people know. It's just, oh, yeah, like, you know, 15 years ago, well, you know, it's just it's just something that happened. It's not a big sensational moment um, where, you know, he's overtly looking for recognition about it or anything um and that's yeah that's always just kind of stuck with me mm. very very cool stuff well unfortunately we we have to wind it up our guest tonight of course has been steve stred author of the color of melancholy an examination of andrew piper's novels as intersected through my life folks i can't recommend it enough not just because steve's a great guy and again uh, essentially my neighbor growing up uh, but because it is a great read as well, you can get it now on Amazon. Steve, there are uh, you can get paperback or Kindle, correct? And hardcover. And hardcover. Oh, brilliant. Okay, there we go. You'll find a link in the show notes. You'll be hearing an ad for it uh, probably over the course of the next month on the show as well. To just to remind you, in <laughs> case you don't get it, Steve. Uh, where, pardon me, Steve. Where can everyone find you online? My website, stevestreadauthor.ca. Otherwise, I'm pretty active on. Uh, do we call it X now? Is it X? We certainly don't. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter um, at Steve Strad or Instagram at Steve Strad or pretty much anywhere um, people are congregating socially online, you'll find me at Steve Strad. Brilliant. And folks, this is a man who jumped his bike over a bear. You should be following him on social media. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, thanks again to Steve Strad for hanging out with us here tonight. Don't forget to check out his new book, The Color of Melancholy. You'll find a link in the show notes. Again, it's on Kindle. It's, uh, you can get paperback and hardback. It's inexpensive, folks. It's a really, really great read, and you're supporting a true Canadian talent. And check out his other books. If you're into extreme horror, and I mean extreme in some cases, like Mastodon, I had a goddamn anxiety attack ball while reading the thing. <laughs> uh, Churn the Soil is much more mainstream horror, uh, and I, I do recommend that one. That's a, I think if you told me that one ended up being made into a film, I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, so again, Steve Strad, you can find his stuff on Amazon, linked in the show notes. Of course, if you want to send us a message to be heard on the show, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a place to send it. We also tend to collect uh, Instagram comments or YouTube comments, uh, it, it, pretty much anywhere you submit to us, we will see it. And we'll, you know, again, if we can work it into a talk spooky show, we absolutely will. And of course, if you are an independent musician or uh, part of a band and you want to have your music featured on our show, Shoot us a message, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We would love to support your independent band here at the end of the podcast. We won't play it on the YouTube version of the show because it gives us a goddamn copyright strike all the time, but we'll absolutely put it in the RSS feed and gets, you'll basically be put in front of, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Send it to us. Shoot me an message. Well, actually, no, don't send me a message on Instagram. We have too many followers for me to keep track of that shit anymore. And that's not a flex. It's just an honest thing. I'm very bad at keeping track of messages. I know, right? <laughs> My friend Christy Max says. <laughs> you know, was, was it the guy from My Chemical Romance followed us the other day? Well, did he? 
That's as weird as the time John Culshaw started following me on Twitter. <laughs> All right, that was unexpected. And James Woods. That happened to me once. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was before he went mad. Oh, okay. Well, that's not so bad. And we do have a featured musical guest on this show. But before we get there, Paul, where can everyone find you online? You can find me as Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms, along with the show on your podcast collators. I'm Largely the Truth on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky and Threads. I never use most of those, but I am there. And you can find my other show, Weird Together, on YouTube and everywhere else fine podcasts live. Don't forget to give us a follow on YouTube, Ghost Story Guys and Weird Together. We're trying to put out some more video content. We're going to be having some folks help us out with some of the editing. We'll talk a little bit more about that once things are finalized. But uh, yeah, so if you want to see what me and Paul look like while we're talking, come check us out on YouTube. I'm sorry in advance. (laughs) All right. So in a happy little bit of synchronicity, our featured artist tonight hails from the great city of Miami. He is Darko Richards, an enormously talented musician whose connection with this show actually goes back almost all the way to the beginning. Uh, In fact, the very first time I played one of Darko's tracks on Ghost Story Guys was on episode 27, which, if you know your Ghost Story Guys lore, do we have lore? Well, I guess we do now. If you know your Ghost Story Guys lore, you'll know that episode 27 was In the Land of the Fairy, The Digression is King, which is where my, uh, I will call it a connection, to the fair folk began. Since then, I've interviewed Darko over on my chat show, Largely the Truth, available wherever fine podcasts live. So if you like what you hear, make sure to check out that episode. You can also find more of Darko's work at darkorichards.bandcamp.com. Tonight, I am honored to be playing the song Junkie from his just-released album, Synthesis 1.0. And when I say just-released, folks, I mean just-released. This came out on July 24th, so it'll be maybe a week old by the time you hear it. Thank you so much for joining us. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. If you want early access to ad-free episodes, bonus shows, and a whole lot more, subscribe to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts or at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. If you don't, that's cool too. Thank you for listening. Make sure to tell your friends, leave a review where you can, and we will see you in a week's time for episode 168. But until then, we'll leave you with Darko Richards and Junkie.